Hello and welcome to this At Any Rate podcast. I'm Arindam Sandelaya from JP Morgan's Global FX Strategy Team. Now, from a geographical expand standpoint, I think this is probably going to be our most global podcast yet. I'm joined by my colleagues Ben Jarman in Sydney and Patrick Clark in New York. Guys, welcome. Now, on to FX markets. Uh, I think uh, it's fair to say that things have been a little cold, a little bloodless since that exciting uh, US CPI print last week. Um, the dollars failed to follow through higher. It's frustrated us and others who have been using long dollars as a hedge against their long bond positions. Actually, uh, neither position has worked over the past week as, as bond markets seem to be packing in um, an increased amount of premium for fewer than expected Fed cuts this year. Uh, our U.S. fixed income colleagues did indeed lift their U.S. Treasury yield forecast this week, looking for uh, uh, 380 on the 10 year uh, by the end of the year instead of 365 earlier. So uh, I guess the question is, why is the dollar trading so sideways? Uh, perhaps a combination of factors. Uh, it looks locally a little expensive to us versus rate differentials. Some of that most likely is uh, is a tariff premium that will not entirely disappear, but it is likely serving to dampen the dollar's uh, beta to rates. Second, uh, the depricing of exuberance in Fed easing expectations uh, that's been in train since the turn of the year is now quite mature, I think, at the time of recording this podcast, whereas markets are pricing in only 78 basis points of cuts for 2024 versus a median SEP dot projection of 75 from last December. So this is the thinnest Fed dovishness premium we have priced in for this cycle. Uh, not to say that it can't extend further, but for that to happen, I think you need to challenge the anchor of pre-Fed cut expectations for this year. And I don't think we'll simply have enough data to do that between now and let's say uh, the next key US event, which is the uh, next non-farm payrolls on March 8th. So there's a bit of a data vacuum or data wilderness to navigate here, which is why markets could feel a little lost, a little directionless, and perhaps more more sensitive to Fed speak than usual. But uh, you know, before we delve into the dollar and the Fed, Let's turn to you, Ben. Uh, your first time on this podcast with us. Well, welcome to the batting crease. Uh, and that's your customary cricket reference for uh, those who don't follow the sport when an Indian and Aussie talk. That's what comes up. Uh, so, Ben, RBNZ next week. Uh, is it is it a big meeting? I know that there's been some volatility in the financial press around RBNZ expectations. Um, you know, What are your own thoughts on the meeting and how do you see the uh, Kiwi play out through that event? Thanks very much, Ari. So, it has been a pretty remarkable few weeks, really, for, for Kiwi. Um, even in late January, um, the market was pricing 100 basis points of cuts from the RBNZ starting from mid-year. And, and now we sit um, with market pricing a third of a chance or one in three chance of a hike next week. So the fact that we're even having the hike conversation, I think, is is pretty remarkable when you look at the data. Um, you know, GDP looks like it will be revised down by a total of about one percentage point in terms of the the backward path. Just this morning, we had retail volumes, which were down a couple of percent and have been falling for for two years straight. Um, inflation was lower than forecast. Core inflation has, has also slowed a lot. Um, and the RBNZ themselves have been forecasting that they'll be back inside the target band in, in the second half of 24. So I think the, the fact that the market is pricing what it's pricing is telling you that there is a lot of uncertainty about uh, the reaction function. Um, you know, we don't think that there is going to be a hike next week, but we also see the leadership is willing to, I guess, condone the hawkish perception uh, because 
they don't really see value in in gradualism of of you know a smooth path towards easing we think the type of communications error they would prefer to make is to to sound hawkish for a little bit too long and ensure policy traction rather than preemptively ease financial conditions so the message we expect from them is pretty similar to what we got in november which is you know forecast downgrades on face value the the numbers look on track to hit their targets, um, but still vigilant on the message about uh, about inflation. All right, and and uh, how does the Kiwi uh, take all of that? Is are we looking at um, a Kiwi rally through the meeting? So I think it's a pretty difficult setup uh, for Kiwi. I mean, earlier in the cycle, um, the RBNZ was of course an, a leader in, in with the hikes, um, and but we we had expected Kiwi to kind of look through that because these were essentially bad hikes um, driven by some pretty stagflationary dynamics previously. Um, in terms of this meeting, you, you know, the, there is already some expectation of a hike. So my sense is that even if they don't deliver that, but they're still watchful or hawkish near term, you, you could see a little bit of a support for Kiwi. But I think, um, you know, people will be pretty um, ready to, to fade that because, um, you know, the growth implications and the sort of, um, you know, game of chicken that's being played here is starting to get um, a little bit dangerous for the, for the medium term growth outlook. Um, we do see a few crosses um, which look vulnerable in the sense that they are usually high beta to domestic growth and would also have usually been hit harder by the repricing higher in dollar rates. So um, Kiwi US, but also Kiwi versus Euro and, and CAD uh, are some that we nominate. Um, so arguably, we haven't seen that the headwinds uh, to to those crosses, particularly because um, Kiwi rates have been repriced higher in line with dollars. But were you to get um, either a potential RBNZ blink here, or the market gets a sense that they might hold on too long and hit growth on either of those fronts, those are the, those are the crosses which arguably have more downside sensitivity. Great. And then, uh, how does all of this uh, contrast with Aussie? I know that you've had. Uh a more uh, hawkish bias on RBA than you've had on RBNZ. I think most of the streets being that way, it's reflected in, uh, I think, uh, a bullish bias on Aussie Kiwi as well. Is that story intact or, uh, you know, are things starting to wobble a little bit on that relative story? Yeah, I think broadly that that is still on track. I mean, when we compare and contrast the uh, the labor market performance and, and the growth performance, as well as the deviations from target that we've seen through this cycle, um, you know, the, the RBNZ is definitely seems on a path to be in their target band sooner um, and is starting from a level of policy rates, which is much more restrictive. So, um, you know, it still seems likely that they will and should be cutting first. But the issue has been for Aussie Kiwi, which, as you mentioned, was a kind of a, a favoured, you know, consensus long uh, in January. And it has been for us as well. It's been really wrong footed by the the relative uh, performance of, of rate markets in, in the two currencies. So market has really wanted to price the RBNZ as potentially hawkish for longer, even though the RBA has been giving you essentially the same message, which is certainly reluctance to canvas cuts soon. Um, the market hasn't been buying it. So um, we even had this month, the RBA say they still haven't ruled out hikes. Um, and the data really don't support them, I think, moving until, you know, late late this year at the earliest. But, um, you know, that shift in rate differentials in Kiwi's favour has definitely 
um, you know, been problematic for positioning in Aussie Kiwi. So that's that's one which we still think makes sense medium term, but you're really subject to the beta to dollar rates at the moment um, and the question of how long it takes the RBNZ to blink. Okay, thanks, Ben, for that. Uh, uh, Pat, now turning to you, um, you know, there's a bit of a, of a sentiment brewing in global markets that uh, we could be seeing some uh, green shoots of global and particularly global ex-US growth starting to show some signs of life. Uh, one of the reasons being put forward for why the dollar's traded so uh, sideways is that this is probably blunting some of this US uh, exceptionalism narrative that's been in train so far. I uh, just want to know what your reading is based on the recent data flow, especially this week's flash PMIs. And, and even if there were to be some truth to this, do you feel like the U.S. is going to surrender its cyclical leadership so clearly that dollar strength will be called into question? Yeah, thanks, Arindam. Um, you know, on the point of kind of that U.S.-led rest-of-world growth signal, I can see where people are coming from. At the same time, I don't think the data released it this week, at least, um, is much in the way of kind of like a, a game changer or a watershed moment, really by any means. Um, you know, I acknowledge that if you kind of take an average of the flash manufacturing PMIs and obviously manufacturing has and should be and has proven to be more, you know, more cyclical, really, and more rate sensitive, um, it has been trending higher. It's it's meaningfully above kind of the troughs that we that we met, uh, you know, basically in the middle of last year. Uh, and that matters, you know, given the dollar's anti-cyclical properties and given that inflections in, in the global manufacturing PMI, I think are three different points throughout this cycle um, have tended to coincide with kind of a peak or a trough in the dollar index as well. Uh, so in that respect, um, you know, certainly cognizant of kind of which way the momentum's trending. Um, from a more tactical vantage point, I'd say it's less clear that it's really all that meaningful. Um, I guess that's for a couple of reasons. Uh, first is that, you know, my own view is that we're in a very U.S. data-centric trading environment right now. And really what matters then is kind of the hard U.S. data that has a direct line to kind of Fed thinking and the dual mandate. So basically inflation and labor markets. Uh, hard to dislodge that, especially given how hot those prints have been kind of running of late. Um, and that's obviously not to say that PMIs don't matter, but I do think the relative importance, the rank order of the data um, does tend to ebb and flow. And right now, PMIs, I don't think, um, really kind of register in that top spot like they have it at other points in the cycle the last few years. Uh, and the second thing I note is just kind of like across economies, it was also a bit muddy in terms of the signal. Like the U.S. is still generally relatively firm, but it did technically disappoint on the services side. The euro composite did beat, but at the same time, you know, German manufacturing slipped back to a 42 handle. So it's really not enough there to me to kind of like signal I, a like global growth is like demonstrably turning holistically up in a very kind of sizable fashion. And B, it's not very obvious that even despite a slight disappointment on the U.S. side. Uh, that U.S. exceptionalism has kind of been, you know, thrown out the window just based on the PMIs themselves. Um, and so on the final point, you know, you mentioned kind of uh, whether we can, uh, you know, basically abandon U.S. exceptionalism more broadly um, and the question about U.S. cyclical leadership. Um, I think it's hard to see the U.S. kind of surrendering, surrendering true cyclical leadership. 
I would also kind of differentiate between, I guess, cyclical and structural to a degree. Cyclicals will obviously ebb. Um, and so, for example, like payrolls isn't going to continue printing about 300,000 in perpetuity. Do you expect some normalization there? And like, you know, ideally, you know, European growth, like German PMIs ultimately do get like off the 42 handle closer to like 50. So like in that sense, you'd expect some kind of like normalization eventually. But kind of in a bigger picture, you think about things like U.S. equity exceptionalism, which is very much on display kind of, you know, this week, the last month, um, you know, this ongoing discussion about relative productivity where the U.S. is really uh, kind of at the vanguard of, um, you know, global growth in that respect. Uh, things very much feel like, you know, the U.S. structural exceptionalism is still very much intact and it's really hard to see kind of if and when that's going to end. Um, and so so long as that's the case, even just by having to kind of maybe trade around, you know, ebbing and flowing cyclicals in the, in the meantime, I mean, this is generally still, I think, a very constructive overall U.S. environment. And that, of course, is good for the dollar. I think that's that's all fair, and and to be fair, uh, you know the data based or uh, or growth expectations based uh, decisions on FX uh, have had a bit of a mixed track record through this cycle. So I think uh, some of the asterisks around what the PMIs are telling us are are well received, but uh, this is you know without doubt been a rates driven cycle to a much greater degree, much more cleanly. And on that front, uh, you know, in terms of Fed speak and its effect in terms of shaping uh, market expectations for rates, uh, what did you make of uh, the Jefferson and especially the Waller comments last week? Uh, this week, uh, you know, given that uh, Waller's uh, sort of incipient dovishness in Q4 was what set off that ferocious cross-asset rally, uh, should markets now pay greater attention to? his lack of dovishness at this point, i.e. what he didn't say mattered a fair bit more than what he did say? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and obviously, you know, Vice Chair Jefferson's comments um, are also important because he is the vice chair. But, uh, you know, Waller has, in my estimation, been the tip of the spear pretty much throughout this cycle, right? So even going back to like um, late 2021, he was kind of the one that introduced the idea that, um, you know, we'd have to taper earlier than expected. Um, and obviously, you know, he was kind of uh, you know, one of the more, in the, in the more hawkish camp during the hiking cycle. And then as, as you say, his comments in December were kind of a signaling point in terms of more of a dovish pivot on the board. And, you know, Powell's very dovish kind of FOMC in December was also kind of on the tail of that. So, always following what Waller says does seem to matter. And in that respect, it does seem like, you know, incrementally since December between what he said then his January comments and now, uh, he has turned incrementally, you know, less dovish. Um, and so in that respect, I, I do certainly think that like, you know, um, internalizing kind of the way he's seeing the world will help us navigate um, what to expect from the rates going forward and by extension, how to think about uh, you know, the dollar and, and FX more broadly, um, you know, from a near-term perspective, it, it was never really going to be the case that he was going to, you know, light the FX world on fire. Because as you say, we've obviously come a long, a long ways year to date in terms of the rates repricing and, you know, Fed speak has been rolled out um, to varying degrees over the last couple of months, um, you know, cautioning the pace and kind of the extent of expect expectations on Fed easing. Um, and so it wasn't really the case that you could have like necessarily a shock 
kind of rates repricing. And at the end of the day, what Waller did say was consistent kind of with where markets are already sitting. Um, and so for that reason, you didn't get much of a, a big response. But nevertheless, I thought his guidance was actually reasonably precise. Uh, and it, in my, in kind of my view, it felt almost like calendar guidance, the way he was talking about, you know, the number of inflation releases and, you know, the number of months that they'd want to be able to kind of keep sitting on things. And so at the very least, that should help markets kind of hone in their pre precision on when exactly they can expect the Fed to move. And at the very least, it kind of like, you know, the idea of calendar guidance means that anything before what has been guided should have a necessarily lower probability. So obviously markets weren't really expecting much in the way of early easing, maybe some residual risk, like risk premium and perhaps some kind of like options, you know, um, options implied moves kind of in the next couple of months. But I think realistically, this helps to really kind of cement the case that the Fed's probably not doing anything up until at least June and kind of gives you the markers along the way that you need to um, kind of pay attention to. And so um, overall, yeah, I thought it was, you know, a rather meaningful speech, one of the, probably the most important that we've had outside of the uh, two FOMC meetings and since Waller's own comments back in December. Um, and so even though there wasn't a big market response, um, still worth, I think, kind of trying to internalize uh, what he was talking about. Um, so Ari, maybe I'll turn it back to you. Um, you know, we've seen slightly better growth recently. Um, but even despite all this, you know, investors seems do seem to be talking a lot about this kind of like abnormally low levels of volatility in the FX space. We've seen some, you know, divergence in, uh, in, in rates fall and FX fall again. Um, a lot of talk about, you know, maybe FX fall is low, but not cheap. I mean, um, how do you how do you think about this right now and how long do you think this could last? Uh, yeah, Pat, so I'll say three things. Uh, first, yes, FX falls are very low. Uh, they are sub 10 percentile of long-term history on our models, depending on how you construct them, anywhere between one and a half to two percentage points, uh, too low benchmark to various metrics of uh, global business cycle. So, uh, um, Yes, FX vaults are low. Uh, they're probably even cheaper than what those models make them out to be because uh, overall global rate levels are materially higher today than for, let's say, the entire post-GFC decade. And higher rates should go in hand in hand with higher vaults, which these business cycle models don't really account for. So uh, adjusting for that factor, um, I think FX vaults are, are materially undervalued. Second, uh, low does not mean cheap, as you as you alluded to. Um, you know they are here for a reason, and the reason is that realized spot ranges in a in a host of currency pairs have been very narrow. Euro USD, for example, has been stuck in this 107, 108 range for a number of weeks now before it broke higher earlier this week, um, and that's why uh, you know it's just not paying uh, investors to be buying these bonds at these very low levels. When we look at how long it takes historically for these uh, low patches of vol to self-correct. The answer is anywhere between uh, seven, eight weeks to six months. Uh, there's a lot of variation. And for all our collective sake, I hope it's not six months in this cycle. And then third, uh, when these are normally low vol patches do eventually end, and they will end, the end often comes via some combination of additional Fed hikes being priced in or higher bond deals, 
um, or maybe some political issue like uh, the Trump tariffs around the 2018-2019 period. And the aftermath of the end of these episodes is almost always a strong dollar over the following three to six months. And I'd say that's uh, in addition to all the other cyclical and structural factors that we've been talking about on this podcast for a while. I think that's another reason why I know we should continue to be somewhat cautious in turning away from our medium-term constructiveness on the underground dollar. And then, uh, Pat, back to you, maybe one final one. You do a lot of work on flows, positioning, and technicals in FX, um, both across cash and in option markets. I know you've done some very interesting work with DTCC data in the last uh, several months. Uh, across all of those metrics, do you see any pockets of positioning build up, any kind of positioning setup that strikes you as odd, worth flagging, but potentially even problematic down the line because it just sets up uh, dry powder for, for de-risking or deleveraging? Yeah, thanks, Rindam. Uh, I'd make two points, I guess, on, on positioning, one on sterling and then one on the broad dollar. You know, sterling had a big kind of jump in the latest features positioning data. Uh, and that basically takes current sterling net length to about 1.8 standard deviations above five-year averages, which uh, is pretty stretched. And if you look at just kind of in levels terms, it is starting to encroach kind of all-time highs in the data series. And so obviously that's looking pretty toppy, especially when you take into account that we have a, a reasonably skeptical view of the UK macro picture more broadly. Um, you know, we're we're... Our, we ourselves are not are not long sterling in our in our macro portfolio, um, and just kind of continue to to question the activity and the inflation side over there. And so, reasonably speaking, I think if activity or inflation were to roll over a little bit more obviously, then positioning becomes a, I think a big potential tailwind uh, to sterling downside. Um, so that stands out to me. I would note as well, at least on the futures metric, that um, sterling. You know, this is not a broad-based kind of like dollar short environment, right? In which case, most G10 currencies all screen long against the dollar. Um, sterling really stands out at that 1.8 sigma level. The next closest is Kiwi at uh, seven tenths. Um, so really quite a bit of a yawning gap there. Uh, and you see it on crosses too. I think we have a couple metrics of looking at like Euro sterling positioning and that too has also been trending, you know, materially lower. So sterling looking pretty well subscribed on a broad basis, uh, which from a contrarian signaling standpoint um, is kind of a yellow, a yellow warning flag, if you would. Um, and then on the dollar side, um, you know, we've received a lot of questions about whether positioning really is an impediment and one of the reasons, you know, for which the dollar hasn't been able to, to rise meaningfully after the, the recent payrolls and the CPI data. Um, and I understand that, especially in the context of, you know, anecdotally and in some of the flows data, you've had a, a lot of decent dollar buying, you know, in the month of January. Um, hedge funds in particular seem pretty well subscribed. So, you know, this idea that dollar positioning is really kind of like a material headwind to dollar upside from here. I, I tend to make two points on this. One, like I acknowledge that, you know, on the momentum side of the positioning data, um, you know, dollars have been bought in decent size. Again, a little bit more obviously in the future space and the option space, but kind of like a, you know, one sigma kind of momentum signal on a four or six week run rate basis. Um, and that's fine. But taking a step back, I mean, a lot of that was actually kind of just, in my estimation, kind of a, a repurchasing or a covering of kind of a huge net short 
um, that built up in November and December in the dollar um, following the CPI release in early November and then, uh, you know, the December FOMC. And so when you square kind of like the dollar buying year to date versus that dollar selling uh, in the fourth quarter, you actually come out kind of flat. And that's actually what we get across a couple of, a couple of our medium term kind of like bigger picture dollar positioning metrics, which are really kind of on flat, just flat levels uh, compared to like 10, 15 year historical averages. Um, and so again, I, I try to kind of delineate between, yes, there's been some momentum and you know these trends tend to get a little bit tired, uh, but positioning itself in stock terms, like the real amount of dollars that are owned on a medium term basis uh, are really not prohibitive in my estimation. And so I think, um, again, while it might be frustrating, you know, the dollar price action maybe a little bit right now in a tactical sense, I don't think it's kind of prohibitive for more of a meaningful dollar uptrend, um, you know, so long as the cyclicals are, are supportive behind that. So that's kind of like, you know, the view on positioning right now, I'd say. Excellent. Excellent. I think I think that's a lot of uh, very decent food for thought in a market where, frankly, not a huge amount seems to be going on. Uh, so let's leave it there for this week. Uh, thanks very much all for listening in. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2024, JP Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on February 23rd, 2024.